Before I leave you to enjoy the episode, I'm going to ask you for a very small favor. Please tell your friends about the show and help me help as many men as possible with their mental health. Now, I know they might not be able to speak up or ask for help, but maybe, just maybe, by listening to these remarkable stories, something will resonate with them. I truly appreciate your support on this, and thank you for listening. Hi and welcome to a new episode of Don't Be a Man About It. If you like this episode, I would encourage you to share it with your friends and tell more men about it. We are here to raise awareness and to support as many men as possible with their mental health. Having said that, my guest today, he is a filmmaker and his films are created specially to raise awareness on mental health and he is a trauma survivor and the Hope Ambassador. Eric Christiansen, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. And it's an honor to be here. Good evening and good morning here. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it's 7 a.m. your time. So, Eric, how is your heart doing today? How's my heart doing? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, um, gosh, you know, it, it, it's it's um, it's a little bit. Gosh, it, it's it's buoyed, but it's a little bit conflicted. You know, it just. Uh, you know, I have three kids and one finally went back east to back to college and then another one came home and it's just, um, you know, the constant, the constant emotional ride of uh, raising kids and saying goodbye, then having them back and seeing their changes and accepting their changes and their maturity, but also kind of wanting that seven-year-old back <laughs> you know so that's that that's where I'm at with that it's it's just it's just part of that it's is part of that journey and it's a real honor to be able to be a dad there and that's one of my main roles you know along with being a filmmaker and then um on the filmmaking front you know uh with my new film Unmasking Hope the fourth my fourth personal film and my, as you said, my films focus on trauma and trauma recovery. It's actually grief recovery. And it's about the hope after traumatic incidences. And, um, but uh, Unmasking Hope is sitting there in my edit suite and uh, we have 95% of it shot and I'm going into this, um, this edit coming up here in this post-production and we have about five months left and, you know, it's, it's what I've done since it's all I've done really since second grade is make films. And so when you're kind of thrust into a situation where you're like, okay, really enjoy this. This is five months of your life where you do what you were made to do. And then, um, you know, on a lot of podcasts, they've asked me, what am I going to do after I don't know what I'm going to do after this film you know and uh so it, it's just it's a little bit um it's ex it's extremely exciting but I also know it's just such a huge undertaking and I want to I want to surpass my personal best on my last film and, and make a really special film and I know it's there 
Yeah. You know, it's just, it, it's actually already exists. I just need to bring it out. And so that's where my heart is. That's a great question. I love that. <laughs> so family and parenting and my, and my calling, you know, that's, that's where my heart's at. And that's it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you, Eric. At the end of the day, I do yeah. believe whatever, whatever we put our heart into, we create more magic and we create more unbelievable and remarkable um, results. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it, and it sounds real great. And that, you know, you have all these sayings say, follow your heart yeah. and everything. But the other side of that great sign and why everybody doesn't follow their heart is there's a lot of, there's a lot of bumps in the road and pain, you know? And, uh, and, and to get to that side, there's things that are thrown in your way, you know, and there's things that you have to come overcome personally to produce things and follow your heart and be the true individual. It's not, it's not all roses, you know, and that's okay because I've learned, I'm learning that along with the good parts of everything and all the joy and happiness or whatever you get out of something that there's the trials and the pain to go through. And in a way, if you can accept that the same way you accept the trials, then, and say, Hey man, I'm really living because of this. I I've, I've decided to become a parent, you know, well, 24 years ago. And, and, uh, but also accept not just, all the amazing things, graduations and all that, and seeing them grow up, but also accept all that stuff that comes with it, the conflict and, the, and, and, and just guiding them through. And if you accept the tougher stuff as being part of it, in a way, almost celebrate it, it, it makes it, and that's kind, of, that's kind of where I'm at, trying to do that and do that with the film and everything. I kind of went on a left turn there, but I think, um, I like the subject, so. <laughs> Please go on. I'm so enjoying how, how your answer is, is basically taking a lot of turns, but at the same time, it's like, so you, I've been speaking to you for like, what, 10 minutes now, and you speak in a way where you take someone into a movie. So I feel like I'm watching a trailer, only that I'm listening to it. <laughs> so I'm loving it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> take your time. <laughs> so... Uh, Eric, um, I watched uh, the trailer. I think you sent me the YouTube link for Un Unmasking Hope. Yes. I got a lot of emotions. I have to tell you, I got a, I'm, I'm a movie freak, just to let you know. And I got a lot of emotions watching that. And I do feel that Unmasking Hope could be one of the educational tools that it, it has to be in schools, it has to be in universities. I got that vibe while watching it. I wanna know the story behind it. Wow, the story behind Unmasking Hope? Uh, well, number one, just to hit on the, the universities and things, all my films end up migrating into institutionalized use. And that's a, that's a real, that's a real blessing. And that's really yeah. one, one of the things that got me hooked. You know, when I did Faces in the Fire over 30 years ago about my recovery following a, 
a fire disaster and losing my house. And I followed these other survivors in the hope afterwards. Um, it not only won my first Emmy Award, but more importantly, actually, to me, it was picked up by the National Institute of Mental Health, and it was put in their catalog to help train counselors that were coming into disaster situations. So my films have this ability to continue on and institutionalize what you would call institutionalized use. I felt it was like a legacy. And, and so, yeah. You know, if, if we're, things don't be a man, so you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up and tell you about my life, my doubts and things here. When you when you say that about the film and see the trailer, I'm like, what trailer is she watching? <laughs> okay, because when you get so close to it, you're like, do I have it here? Am I making the movie I'm supposed to make here? And um, but anyways, the, the story behind Unmasking Hope, it's a fourth in a line of my films and it's, it's a progression. And, um, you know, originally my first film, like I mentioned, was Faces in the Fire 30 years ago. And then and, and <clears throat> you have to understand in between all these films, I did dozens of national commercials. I've done IMAX movies, I've done you know, Discovery Channel, the, the Navy SEALs, all this stuff, but nothing like close to my heart and my calling. These are the four films that I'm talking about are, are my personal films that I put everything into that are my calling. It's beyond filmmaking for me. So the first film was Faces in the Fire about the, the you know, the recovery after a disaster. And then, um, gosh, almost eight years later, I did Homecoming, a Vietnam Vets Journey. And I followed a good friend of mine on a motorcycle run across uh, the United States from California to the wall of Washington, DC, and 300 other Vietnam vets on motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And it was a healing pilgrimage. And there was a huge catharsis for him about working through his trauma from the war and things like that. And that was my first piece with, uh, with veterans. Then another eight to 10 years later was Searching for Home, my last film, Searching for Home, Coming Back from War. And that was, I, had, I expanded that. What I found out is all these Vietnam veterans were essentially telling the same story about their healing. Core, deep down core, we all heal the same way. It's just like getting a scratch or something. It's going to scab over. It's going to have these phases. And I, I believe God set up a way for us um, to heal in a similar way mentally um, from trauma and grief. And so um, I, with Searching for Home, coming back from war, I expanded that idea. I had veterans from all um, generations. I had World War II veterans. I had Korean veterans. I had female veterans. I had the guys that are coming home now and a female veteran that was just had just come home. And so I really mixed it up and I call it my thesis. This aggregate of all these people with these different experiences, they end up telling the same story. Yeah. And so hence now to answer your question, Unmasking Hope is a logical extension of that. But instead of just mixing up the, um, the genders and the race and the ages, I've, I've mixed up the different traumas and the different incidents. So this film has you know, male, female, whatever, all different races, 
but it has all different traumas. So it has 9-11 survivors, it has mass shooting survivors, it has um, first responders, it has um, a child Holocaust survivor, and they're all telling their stories. Now, why I didn't say they're all telling the same story? I really hope they are because it's gonna be a moment in my edit suite when I'm working on this, hopefully, like there was with Searching for Home, when I watch it roll out and I'm watching the first cut and I go, oh, it worked again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all these people are telling this beautiful story even though they're so different. This Holocaust survivor's telling, and I can already see hints of it from the interviews. I mean, it's amazing to talk to a mass shooting survivor than talk to a 9-11 survivor that happened 20 years ago, almost now. Um, and, and they're, they're kind of telling the same story, even running away and losing their shoes. This, this thing, <laughs> these, both these women that one was a mass shooting survivor, one ran from Tower 2 um, in 9-11, they lost their shoes when they're running in this insane chaos. And um, it's, just, it, it's just beautiful. So, so my idea with Unmasking Hope is I wanted to take that idea one step further that we really do heal all the same, no matter the gender, race, or the, or the trauma. And so um, that's where that really came from. And uh, I'm in the middle of it now and crossing my fingers. And actually, I don't cross my fingers. I just know that there's a divine presence that's trying to guide me into telling the right story. And, and they will all be telling this beautiful same story because it's the same way we can relate from across the ocean or on the other side of the world and we can talk about feelings the same way we can relate when we talk about trauma because we're all human and and, and people forget that mm. and this divisiveness that's going on now even in your own family right now you know we have tension in our family about certain things and it's like get over that because we're like family and you know we're like family you and me we're, we're humans and we like you know, a good friend of mine, he's a musician, you know, and he has this great song and it's kind of a throw off line in the song, but I, I keep thinking about it. He, he, he just says, you know what, we all, we all want, we all want love and something good to eat. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think we all want love and something good to eat. If I came over tomorrow to your place and I brought something great to eat, we'd be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'd have this connection. So anyways. That's beautiful. Um, usually trauma survivors, they could be triggered easily. So how are your movies or maybe how is your story could be a trigger to people watching it or to people he hearing it and what's next after that? Oh, so we're talking about triggers in the films? Yeah. Oh, you know, that's something I, I'm very, very careful about because, yeah. and that's a great question, right? That's a really good question because, you know, with Searching for Home Coming Back for More, there's three parts of my movies usually. And um, <clears throat> the one part is, one part is the truth. And the truth is what happened, the incident. The next part is the healing. And the healing, it could come 50 years later in some cases. But the healing is when the individual discovers there's other people like them. 
it's like, oh, me too. Oh my gosh, there's other people like me that have survived. I'm not crazy. All these thoughts I have, I'm not alone. And then that healing, that's the start of the healing. Then they, then they start a, like, whatever. It takes so many different modalities, they say, of healing. There's so many different ways. And then there's the hope. And so the hope is, for me, defined as, obviously, it's a hope of a better life. But the ultimate hope is when you get so far in your healing, you go back to the beginning of the line and help the people in the truth. So why I'm mentioning this part is and having to do with triggers is the truth is what most movies are about. It's about the incident. The hurricane was terrible. Look at the hurricane. It was huge. And all these people were displaced. Da, 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 da. And then at the very end, they have some people going, oh man, I hope we can rebuild. And then that's the end of the movie. Well, my movies don't end there. That part of the incident is, is the part that can really trigger people. So when I first had the first cut of searching for home coming back from war the the truth part of everybody the incident that happened to everybody was like almost a third of the movie and i'm like no that's not gonna work we can't have that because people don't want to see it outside people want to see it they want to see the car crash but most people and the people involved and they don't want to see they know and it's and so we have to congeal that down and so my bit my work is taking that whole thing about the truth and making it as small as possible. You know, the, the part about 9-11 in my film, Unmasking Hope, we're not going to tell the whole story of everything that happened. You know, we're, we're going to try to make it this big and then we're going to tell the rest of the story. We're going to tell how she found the healing, what happened afterwards, that trial, all that stuff. That was 18 years, well, 19 years now, afterwards. And and talk about the hope, uh, uh, talk about the healing and the hope. So I'm very careful not to dwell on the incident and not to show things that are provocative in that way either because um, my films aren't sensationalized that way. Uh, you know, it's very, very sensitive with the mass shooting. Uh, I, I don't know how really I'm going to um, cover that um, in, in Unmasking Hope, but I'll be given away. But the most important part of that journey is this beautiful thing that we do with the survivors. We have two of them in the film is instead of like focusing on the, the fact one was in two shootings, believe it or not, she survived the Route 91 shooting and then she was at borderline. And what are the odds of that? and she was in another mass shooting. So she survived two shootings. Mm. But the, the, the main thing with them and what, well, what well, people will walk away with is not the fact that they were in a mass shooting. It's the fact that they, were, they walked through this process of painting rocks. One of the things you do, the, the survivors there do, is they paint rocks to memorialize that incident. And they were never ever gonna go back to Vegas and we had the honor of being able to go back to Las Vegas with them, take those rocks to the Memorial Garden, which is so important to have memorials, no matter what it is. If you've lost somebody to cancer, if you had a serious, whatever has happened in your life to build your own memorials or have a certain place you go to memorialize things. But we took these rocks back to this beautiful 
um, Route 91 Memorial in Las Vegas, and they placed their rocks there. And, and that it just, I don't know what it is <laughs> that, that releases so much from painting a rock and then taking it there. I mean, we chose the rocks with them. That was part of the process. And oh, I got to tell you one really cool thing. We're, we're on the beach and I told them this is a very spiritual beach. This is a very special beach for me. We went way out of the way here in California, up north of the, way up north of Santa Barbara in Los Angeles. And we're at this really kind of remote beach. And, and uh, everybody's like, wow, this is a special beach. And they're, they're going around looking for the rocks. You know, the camera was there. It's more important that we work with the people and they're working through their thing. And, but the camera was there. We didn't, it wasn't for the camera, it's for them. So we're looking for rocks and stuff on this beautiful beach. And my producer goes, oh my gosh, there's dolphins out there. And I've been at this beach a lot. I've surfed my whole life there because I'm a surfer. And I look out there and I've never seen this, but this dolphin was going, jumping out of the water, like 10 feet high and doing loops and like landing back where everybody could see them. And I'm like, if that's not a sign, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so anyways, I, I give really long answers to questions. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's, that's the beauty of it. Um, the purpose of doing all of that, I want people listening to, to resonate, to, to get the right knowledge because I have came to realize for the past, let's say, 10 years, people have mixed definitions or let's say wrong definitions of what depression is, what trauma is, what, how to talk with, let's say, a suicidal person, how not to do. They do not know all of these information. And as a suicide survivor, I, I attempted suicide three times and losing my dad to it. And I have a lot of friends who are survive uh, trauma survivors i just want people to be more educated in that area so the longer your answer is the better because at the end of the day this is we, i am here to serve and you're helping me do that so thank you well you know it's interesting and how to talk to survivors yes i was just going to ask you you know that that's um the do's you know, I've, I've talked to dozens and dozens of survivors and of all sorts of different things now. Yeah. And I've had the honor to accompany two amazing men back to like major memorials. One's a Vietnam vet I went to the wall with. Mm -hmm. One's a first responder that ran into Tower 2, literally, right before it collapsed and got pushed back by the collapse of it. I was able to walk the 9-11 memorial with him, but uh, that's great stuff. But all these people I've talked to and how to, I, I call it holding space. Yes, yes. You know, I create this, you, you really don't have to talk. Yeah. <laughs> the more you talk, the worse it is. <laughs> you know, it really is. And, and at first it's very tough to force yourself to be there and hold that silence. But there's a way to do it where you're almost like hugging them and you're not. And um, it's sure. just, you know, if, if you have a friend or a relative and they're going through a suicidal bout or a depression, you know, it's like, please don't say, no, I know how that feels because you don't. <laughs> but, you can, but you can go, you know what? I, I'm really, what is going on? And just open up like, 
and and then don't worry about like getting your next word in because it'll happen naturally and you hold this space and create this space around you imagine creating like a beautiful whatever you love creating a little nice warm place on the beach around you guys you know and what whatever it is you know and and you hold that space i tell my i tell my crew members and i choose them really carefully because we have circles kind of like how close do i want these people to our participants you know and fortunately we have an amazing crew right now and uh and it's very small but I tell, I tell everybody that comes in on our crew that the individual and the person in the film are the number one thing. Being transparent and comfortable with them is the number one thing, you know? And, and it's amazing how the right people show up for my crew members and how appropriate some of them are. I think about our, you know, I hope she hears this. I, I think about one of our, production assistants, we, we started working with Stephanie out of New York, you know, and I, I ran an ad for a production assistant in New York. And it's interesting because I get a certain kind of letter from the people that want to be there. They're drawn to it. They know that there's something they're going to get out of it personally and maybe heal themselves by being involved in, in, in our work. And Stephanie was like that. And, uh, Man, we had another, oh gosh, we had another guy that sent me a similar one in LA. Unfortunately, he had to go back to Indiana where his parents are because of all this COVID stuff. And, but man, he was so appropriate around the people. And may, being appropriate means, you know, you don't ask a lot of like questions, you know, you're just kind of there for them. And if they open up and they start speaking, then you kind of lead them into and, and, and really be transparent. For me as an interviewer, I have to be transparent. I have to like let my guard down and be able to be vulnerable with them. And um, that's one of my greatest honors. You know, with, with Sandra Lee, um, she was a Iraqi veteran and <laughs> she's, she's a little Korean woman and she's absolutely the cutest thing and I can't imagine her toting around an air like, but she's badass. And she she did her she did her job, but she also suffered military sexual trauma. And uh, under the under the hands of you know one of her uh, superiors. And uh, you know, I I was honored to like hear her story and she opened up and I was one of the first males to hear this story, you know? And, um, and that's, that's an honor. And it happens because I become vulnerable with them, you know, and it's on, it's, it's my honor to hear their sacred story, you know, because everybody's story is the most, you know, when they're telling you their story, it's the most important story to them. And it's sacred to them. And so to be able to be given that story is very sacred. So when you're talking to your friends and they want to open up or something and you create that space, it's a really sacred, special time for somebody to open up about their, about their feelings with you. Yeah. You want to <laughs> slow down? You want to take a breath? I don't know why. I feel like...
No? <laughs> You're good? No, no. Yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm centering a little bit. And I, I just, I, I feel, I, I just, this is very nice. I, I, I like the, I like the, where we're going with this. It's great to be able to talk about the, the finer points of what I do. There's not many people that, that really, other outside of my circle that are really, uh, really hear this. So it's kind of cool. All right. I feel a lot of emotions. And when you mentioned that when someone wants to share their story, it's the most important story of their lives. That's so true. But how, what are the, I know there are a lot of do's and don'ts and challenging or unique challenges when speaking to someone as a trauma survivor, but what are the basics, whether it was for their families or partners or maybe colleagues, how can they go back to their normal, normal lives, but also to feel normal? Because I know that there's no going back and the only way to move forward is actually, as you said, to heal at your own pace and to just hold the space. But how can other people, not as a trauma survivor, how can other people behave and help and support a trauma survivor without making them feel bad about it, without triggering them, without actually ruining even the friendship or the relationship? Because sometimes when you don't know how to act with someone, you just pull back. I don't know how to help. So I'm just going to pull back and that would make the trauma survivor feel worse. Well, that's, you know, that's a great question. It's very, it's very complex question too, is, um, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not an expert. I work with some amazing clinicians, you know, in, in, in my, in my work and, uh, but I'm not an expert on something like this, but you know, one of the most important things is, is normalcy, you know, and trying to maintain a modicum of like normalcy, you know, and, and not, not being so, you know, for, for me, you know, I've been in recovery from drugs and alcohol for 30 years. And one of the things that really bugs me is when I come into a room is when people, do you mind if I drink? Oh, well, what about this? You know, and they get all weird about that and it, it becomes a subject. It's not a subject. Go ahead and do what you do, <laughs> you know? It's okay because it it actually is more of a, a trigger for me when it becomes like a big deal, you know? I, I You know, anyways, it, it's a miracle. My obsession has been lifted and it was lifted over 30 years ago, but... And, and I imagine that's why I use my personal recovery as kind of a, a sketch of what it is like for others. So if you make a situation out of it, how are you feeling? You okay? You know, and, and doing this whole like thing, it, it really makes, it, it really makes it like way worse. And you're like, what? We used to just hang out, you know, what, why is it now this way? And so it is for kind of, remember it, the, the person's soul is still the same. Yeah. You're still with that same soul, you know, that same 
person that you really enjoyed being with, something's just happened to them, but they're still the same core. So, you know, imagine that, look through that, look through what happened to them and be like, oh my gosh, we're back together hanging out again. You know, this is freaking awesome. So let's go do this. Let, let's go, you know, let's go bake a cake because we always used to bake together or whatever, you know? And it's just like, it's just, it, it, some people think they need to like bring it out so they can talk, you know, that's not it. It's called holding, to me, it goes back to holding space. You create an environment and a place. And if they want to talk about it, they'll bring it up, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but if not, then, you know, normalcy, that's just my personal thing. I'm not, as I say, I'm not an expert, but bringing some normalcy to it and, and loving the, the person. What's that? Did you get the normalcy while you were going through your um, trauma? You know, for me, you know, um, the, here's the funny thing about my trauma is losing my home wasn't the real trauma, you know, it, it wasn't. It's what I did to myself afterwards. It's, it's where I was already uh, an alcoholic. I already didn't drink, I drank abnormally. And it's where I went afterwards and what I did to myself afterwards that was my trauma. It, it's, it's the drinking, the self-pity and the place I took myself in that bottom, that was my trauma, you know? So, you know, it was very, very difficult to be around me after that, you know? But um, the woman that's my wife now, you know, gave me, and, and we talked about this before we came on. She gave me this guy's call, card, Don R, and said, and, and she did it so beautifully. She said, if you're tired of doing what you're doing, then you should call this guy. You know, he, he doesn't drink or, or do anything. And he's very, he's, he's a cool, happy guy. I'm like, man, what, really? Okay. Because I, I, I was done. And, and that's all she said. And gave me this guy's card. And I... I went to go see Don R and, uh, you know, I was, uh, what I, I ended up going to an outpatient and that was great, but I got introduced to a program yeah. for living that changed my life. And, uh, and that's what I still do today. But, um, you know, I've kind of lost track of what I was saying cause I got into this whole recovery track. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's how my that's how my recovery started and uh and uh and and then and then you know creating normalcy after my you know trauma that's you know i i, I had to find a spiritual solution and um and Slowly but surely, you know, nothing was the same after that. And nothing was the same after the fire. Nothing was the same after I, I, I stopped drinking. But that became my new normal. And it became an adventure. And, uh, and I got to remember that because it still is. Parenting is an adventure. All this has, it goes back to what I was saying before, the good and the bad. Yeah. But uh, so well, that's where I took that Thank one. you for sharing. And... I'm happy you're here. 
Thank you. <laughs> so the new Norman, how long did it take you to accept your new Norman? Because you were telling me that one part of actually healing or fully healing is when you accept the bad as much as you accept the good. How long did it take you? How, who helped you to accept this new normal? Did you go to therapy? Well, or only it was your wife or their sponsor? How did you go through it? Oh man, you know, uh, for me, it's kind of multi-level. I mean, I have my groups and I have a lot of other fellow alcoholics that um, I connect with. That's really important on a group level. It's very important for me to hear their stories. But I think, you know, for me, um, and then it's important at a certain point, you know, I think I, I, I was about five years sober, then I started helping other guys. And that was really important to like pass it on. And that's the hope, you know, as what I define the hope and working with other guys and being their mentor. And, um, and I'm honored to have, you know, a few guys that I'm doing that with right now. But here's the crazy part about that is they end up helping me more than I'm helping them. And it sounds such a pat cliche, but when you're trying to walk somebody through what you've been through and you try to help them, and then you hear yourself saying the same things. You're like, maybe I should implement some of those things a little bit more in my life also, you know? And then the teacher, you know, the, the student becomes the teacher, you know, and it, it, but it's the willingness and being open to that experience. And, and this, the idea of don't be a man, it, it's a very vulnerable place, you know, um, it, it just not being, not being the expert on everything, you know, you're guiding somebody through it, but you, you're not the expert on everything. You you need to like remain humble enough that you can hear something from them and learn from them. And then your life becomes way fuller. I think a lot of men, especially men my age in their 50s, get set that everything they do is, is kind of right, you know, and they, it, it just kind of, but that vulnerability of like being able to be teachable is key to growth. You know, I was talking to my, my sponsor, I guess we'll just call him my sponsor. I try to remain semi-anonymous on these, but I, I was talking to my sponsor and he has, he's 84 years old and has 55 years of sobriety, you know, and, uh, but he's a humble man. And, uh, and one of the things we ended up talking about is I'd rather kind of seem like a bumbling newcomer, even though I have 30 years or whatever, than to be an expert on everything and not be able to learn. I'd rather be a bumbling newcomer and be able to seem that way and ask questions and be able to learn. But with that comes, I guess, a dent in your pride. And, um, you know, it's the same with parenting. You know, I want to be the expert and tell all my kids exactly what to do, but I'm not always right. You know, and I have to accept the fact that maybe I do have some fallibility and things. And then that makes it a little bit more real, you know, and, 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 and it, I think it increases connection. But going back to men my age and 
and mentorship and everything. I think that's one of the most important things that you could possibly do because going back to how, you know, I, I get to a certain point, my life is kind of trying to find normalcy. That's what my goal is. I don't know if I'm ever going to find it. You know, the closest thing I can feel normalcy right now is I've gotten into stand-up paddleboarding. And when I'm paddleboarding by myself on a really beautiful day, everything goes away. <laughs> it's like paddling out in the surf when I'm sitting in the surf. But, but going back to like life, you know, that's, but I need help. I need help to find that normalcy. I need, I need a mirror. I need somebody that can see me clearly that can speak into me. And so, you know, I help others and I'm open to them giving it back to me. And then I have my mentor and I let him speak into me. And I've done that for 30 years now. And it's, I have, I have no, had no reason to go back to the way I completely back to the way I was or take a drink or use a drug. And, uh, because of that and God, I mean, he's my ultimate shield. So. Is there any specific? I, 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 yeah, he's going. Oh, I, I, I go, I just can't say enough, you know, about watching, watching men my age, watching them leave their families, watching them chase cars, drugs, booze, their job, money, you know, man, if, if, if somehow you can just get a sage, find yourself a mentor, a man older than you, that's already done all that stuff and messed it up and he's fixed it. <laughs> that can speak into you. I think it would solve a lot of, a lot of turmoil that I see in families and, uh, and, and men my age. And uh, I thank God for the other men my age on my path, you know, and uh, I thank God for the guys I sponsor and, and my sponsee, but that's man, I, I look at it. Interesting um, point that you just highlighted because men your age, which means that's another whole generation. When they go to drugs or when they go to alcohol or let's say unique lifestyle, they're trying to fill a void or they're trying to fill a gap. Oh, definitely. And, and that gap is, you know, for me, through how I see it and, and maybe other people see it differently, it's a spiritual malady. You know, it's a, it's a hole that can't be filled. It's a God-sized hole is what they say. You know, you're looking for some sort of spiritual fulfillment. And, and I'm being very vague on the spiritual part for a reason. You know, I'm not going to go out and like say, this is the right God. This is what you should do or something. I, I think we all reach that through different ways. But I think we all as humans have a need for some sort of connection that way. That's my personal belief that I do believe strongly. But it goes back to what you were saying, filling that void you know, man, a new car, even though it's a $150,000 car, isn't, or, or more, which I've seen, um, it, it gets old, you know, but being to be able to be semi-okay with yourself 
and have some sort of connection, I think it, it doesn't get old. And, and that, and that, and for certain people like me with obsessive personality and the ism, you know, alcoholism, it's not wasm, they say it's an ism, you know, and more is always better with me, you know, it's it just, um, it, nothing is enough, you know, of this earth. You know, it's like, I, I can't get enough of certain things, you know? And so I, I have to substitute that with a connection. And that connection comes in a million different forms. You know, it's, it's, it is God, but it comes through my sponsor. It comes through my groups. It comes through my family. It comes through me occasionally feeling okay with myself. It comes through me getting my big old body out there on my board and paddling out. It, it comes through my paddle boarding. It comes through, you know, just time with my wife. When, when I'm not worried about what I'm getting, <laughs> yeah. which is, which is, you know, it's like my, one of my sponsors used to say, me, 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 I, 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 me, 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 I, <laughs> you know, and that's the way we get. And, uh, so anyways, you know, and, and let me, let me tell the listeners, I am far from perfect. If my wife came in here right now, she would tell you that, but man, I really do try. It's Who the is? willingness. Who is? It's the willingness. You're perfect. Just, just the way you are. And the next day would be more perfect. No, um, this perfectionism that people chase from, from people I work with, it doesn't exist. So you're perfect just the way you are. And tomorrow you will do better, no? Oh, yeah. You know, and it's funny. You, you hit it on the head. It doesn't exist. And it's just like, you know, oh, man, it's just, yeah, it just doesn't exist because we try so hard. You know, there, there's, a, in one of my books, there's an analogy of the actor, you know, and the actor is like now become the director and now he's the lighting guy and he's moving the lights and he's telling people what to do and if only they would behave the way he needs them to everything will be okay but there's just too many moving parts that that's not going to happen and everything won't be okay so acceptance becomes the key to all my problems you know and and acceptance is not defeat you know people get that really mixed up yeah. you know it's like this is the way it is this is the way god intended it to be and um and people have a real hard time with that but you know uh we we change the things we can and then we accept the things we can't change and then we pray for things to change you know that we would like to change and so and somewhere in all that becomes a place that we can be still and achieve a little bit of normality or whatever the heck that is but you know the other day we were, we were someplace and I was just doing all my stuff I do and my wife is like you're so weird and I go oh my gosh really and she goes yeah and I go thank god because <laughs> I'd be really worried if I ever if you ever thought I was normal <laughs> yeah well, I think we're just <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for being here. Well, this is great. And um, wow, I mean, I guess I was 
fairly intelligible so early in the morning and went well i think <laughs> it was really great <laughs> thank you great i i want to get people on my show and it's really early in the morning i ask them are you a morning person or you're not <laughs> i don't want to be asking too many questions well i'm kind of you know i'm kind of 50 50 on that you know it's if when I get into a mode, I become a morning person. But you know, honestly, when I'm working artistically, I, I don't start rolling until about three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. Then I'm like, oh, okay. So I kind of plan my day accordingly, like get mechanical things done, and then by about three o'clock, then I can make some more creative decisions. <laughs> thank you. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, thank you. What's that? Anything else you'd like to, to add? Oh my gosh. We just, you know, we, we covered it, you know, and um, I'm just really happy that we were able to talk about the mentorship because I think, and it's very difficult. It's difficult to ask for help. It's difficult to be, you know, a 50 year old man, you know, and, and, say you're you're semi-successful and stuff but your personal life is falling apart or whatever to ask for help is not easy and i understand that you know if you go to a, some sort of church ask a mentor there if you have another friend ask him just to you know and be real honest you know say hey you know i'm kind of i got some rough spots can we talk get coffee because i've been watching you and i like i kind of like how you handle things you know and i i really believe if men did that all over the world um you know it would it would it, it would just take a little bit of the edge off it's sand that edge that you bump into that you, <laughs> that's like a little bit sharp off you know and um and not only that but that 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 momentary reduction of pride to ask for help will turn into feeling a little bit better and as you said, you know, I, I like what you said. And my sponsor says this, we just try to be a little bit better each day. Yeah. And tomorrow I'm going to be a little bit better version of myself. And, um, and we're always, in, we're always the last to notice that, but, but it, that's, that's my goal. And that's, you know, my final thought is just, you know, just find somebody you respect and ask just for their ear and see what happens. I like that. 